If you've not done so, please turn in your Bibles to page 813. At least that's the page number in the black Bibles around you. Page 813 will have a section of Scripture with three stories from Matthew 8 and 9 that we'll be covering today in what is now our 33rd message through the Gospel according to Matthew. If you're not familiar with reading the Bible or being around the Christian church, when we say the Gospel according to Matthew, what we're talking about is an announcement, a declaration. That's what the word Gospel means. It means an announcement of, of typically good news that anybody would have used during the time of the Bible's writing. So this is not actually a religious word, the, the word gospel. And this is according to Matthew, meaning that Matthew was the one that collected this announcement about Jesus. I think it's helpful to remind ourselves that when we talk about being a gospel-centered church or gospel-preaching church, what that means then fundamentally what I'm doing now is not... M- teaching as much as I am preaching an announcement week in and week out if we're going to be a gospel-centered church, that the fundamental thrust of preaching then should be announcing and declaring something more so than teaching you something about history or teaching you something about how you can live your life better. And although I've stated again and again, that isn't a very important thing that I'll throw in there and there'll be little bits of teaching here and there. The primary thing that we're about to do right now is to hear an announcement according to Matthew's stories that he collected together about a man named Jesus. And so right from the get-go, I want to announce that Jesus is a man who has the fullness of God dwelling in him. Some have said he's 100% man, 100% God, all in the same. It's not 50% God and 50% man. It's 100%, 100%. He's 200% of of a human being. 100% God, 100% man. I'm going to announce that throughout these teachings that Jesus is God. And for some of you, that may be a new idea or a new concept to wrestle with. If you're new to Christianity, that's at the core of what it means to really understand Christianity, is to realize that God, all the songs we sang earlier, that he's with us, that he's for us, he will never leave us, that's demonstrated most clearly with God coming down and being one of us, a human. But for those of you that have heard that a lot, this phrase has captured my attention as a Christian who's grown up in the church and been around the Bible for a long time. Not only does the Bible say that Jesus is God, but flip that around, think this as we go through this text. That means God is Jesus. Not that God is a man, but that when you see the man Jesus, you see God. And if you want to get to know what God is like, the one true God, the one creator God, the one who holds all of us together by the word of his power and gives us breath in our lungs to breathe today, that God, what is he like? Well, look at Jesus. And Every time you see Jesus, you should think, that's what God's like. So let's open our Bibles, like I said, to this text, and we're going to look at three stories in a series of nine stories that were breaking into part into sets of three. So chapters eight and nine have three sets of three stories about miracles and healings. And we're going to actually start with story number three, 
then story number two, then story number one. We're going to go backwards in order because I think that the first story in our section is the best, and I think it'd be best to kind of end on that note and hopefully have a nice effect for all of us. So we'll actually start in chapter nine with the first story in chapter nine, verse one. So it's page 813, starting in verse one. Nine is the big number. Verse one is the little numbers. And this is about Jesus healing a man who is paralyzed. Story number one. And getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. I believe this story is announcing to us, Jesus is God, that means God is Jesus, so when we see Jesus, what is he doing here, in what way is this story telling us about who God is and who Jesus is? Here's a short way to sum it up. Jesus is the only priest you and I will ever need. Jesus is the only priest you and I will ever need. Some of you I know have Catholic backgrounds. We've taught about this in recent sermon series and teachings, but it's often common to call someone in my position like a religious leader, a priest. And we, around here, if you've been around us, we don't use that language for my title or people who are leading churches, because we think that Jesus is the only and the supreme priest and the only one that you need to pray to, confess to, have your sins forgiven by, and there's no other man that you should go between, no other woman, no other person that you need to go to in order to talk to God. You can just go to Jesus, and He is a man, and He is the only mediator between God and man because he is God, and that means God wants to forgive us of our sins. And so let's walk through this story briefly and see this point. First, I want you to notice that in verse 2, it says that Jesus saw their faith, which is in the plural, meaning that Jesus is talking not just about the faith of the paralyzed man, but the friends who are carrying him to Jesus. I think that's important because it's not like this man's paying or convincing these people to take him to Jesus. We don't know what his personal faith is like, but collectively the group believes that Jesus can do something about this man's problem. Namely, he can't walk, he's paralyzed. What's interesting, though, is that you and I sometimes don't realize that our faith as an individual 
can be strengthened by the people around us. And as a quick application point for you to be thinking about, a little teaching nugget for you to apply to your own life. When your faith is weak, when times are hard, this is one of the reasons why we gather together weekly, why we get to know one another, so that way your faith can be encouraged by one another, and that we can collectively have faith as a community and not just you as an individual, and this is all about just you and Jesus. That's why if all that mattered is hearing teaching and sermons, then all of you could have just stayed home. There's lots of sermons you can listen to or watch on television. Some of them, they're a lot better than me. I mean, it's not like you should come for that. We come together because it's really good to see our faith encouraged by other person's faith. And I want you to think about your own life. Have you not seen somebody have just really fresh faith in God and that start to challenge you or encourage you? Maybe this man was struggling. We don't know. Maybe this man was struggling to think, I don't know if anybody will ever heal me. But somebody in that group, multiple people in the group, believed and brought this man to Jesus. So consider the way that your faith can encourage other people's faith in Jesus. And for those of you that are weak right now, you're struggling in your faith. All the more reason to get together with other people and share what's going on and let their faith be a a crutch for you during this struggling time. The next thing I want to point out in this story is the way Jesus talks so tenderly. Take heart, my son. And this word is very often used to talk about children, like take heart, little child, my little child. Your sins are forgiven. When you see Jesus talking this way to this man, he doesn't ignore him. He doesn't say, I'm too busy for you. Oh, I don't care about people that are diseased or lamed or whatever. He looks at this man and he says, take heart, my son. If Jesus is God, that means God is Jesus and the God of the universe cares about weak, poor, sick, hurting people. Do any of you in this room need to see through the face of Jesus the loving, tender care of a God who cares, who notices, who stops and pays attention? What's most interesting about these words is that Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Now, why do you think these friends are bringing this man to Jesus? The obvious answer is, he can't walk. And so we're expecting when you're reading the story, are you not? These men bring this paralyzed man to Jesus. My son, oh, let me help you. Rise and walk. But why isn't that what he says first? He says, your sins are forgiven. You've got to imagine these friends are like scratching their head. Like, no, that's not what we came for, Jesus. We came for the healing stuff. That We heard that you are a hero, healer. So why is Jesus talking about forgiveness of sins? Some might think that it was because this man sinned in some sort of way that that led to his physical ailment, namely his paralysis. 
There is only one time in all of the scriptures that we have a very explicit teaching on that subject, and it was about a blind man where Jesus is asked by some people, hey, is this man blind because of some sin that he did? And the definitive answer is no. So we can rule out that idea that Jesus is dealing with the sin because the sin is the problem that directly led as a one-to-one correlation between this man's sin and this man's physical ailments. And that's very important to point out because so many times you all catch yourself, listen, notice, I've heard it, well, this is happening to me because I sinned this way. Well, God's probably punishing me in this particular way because I did this. When we look into the face of Jesus, if Jesus is God and therefore God is Jesus, that is not what God is like. He definitively said, no, that's not how I think through blindness or paralysis. So my friend, please encourage one another when you feel sick, when you feel discouraged about circumstances that are very trying. Help each other with each other's faith to help believe that there is therefore now no punitive, punishing condemnation where God says, oh, you did this? Well, watch, I'm going to do this. That is not the God of the Bible because that is not Jesus. I want to announce that. You catching me? I want to announce and make sure it's loud and clear for all of us. That is not what God is like. So encourage one another with this truth when we struggle with the pains and sorrows of this world to not quickly look for reasons why that happened. On a broader level, There is something called evil that's in the world and sin that has brought upon all the decay and destruction in this world. So why is Jesus addressing the sin issue? Because the sin is the deeper fundamental problem, not because of some particular sin that man did. You can rule that out. But it is the underlying problem for all decay and destruction that's going on in the whole world. Furthermore, we need to realize that Jesus is the one with the authority and the power to forgive sins. And that's what we're seeing in this story in the way Jesus responds. So, before we move on, do you believe that sin is the biggest problem in your life, in this church, in our community, in our nation, and really the world? This is a fundamental teaching of the Christian scriptures that sin came into the world through our first parents, Adam and Eve, when you read the first three chapters of Genesis. And that through sin came death, and through sin came a destruction of our mind, our hearts. Every part of our society is affected by what we call sin or being off the mark or off the target of what is right and good. How many of us are putting our hopes in political changes or in circumstantial differences? Maybe this circumstance is going poorly, and then if I change my circumstance, then that thing will all be better in my life. But what if sin is still the problem from that circumstance, and sin is still a problem in this circumstance? You might still have some of your problems. How can this apply to your life? 
I want you to be thinking about how sin is the deeper problem behind all our problems. And that we would, as a church community, long for and strive for helping one another deal with sin. And there's good news here because the God of the universe wants to forgive sin. He's offering this man. He did not come and say, God, I confess, I am a terrible sinner and I need your forgiveness. Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. He takes the initiative. So it is with so much of our forgiveness, is it not, that God is the one on the initiative coming after us and forgiving us. See in Jesus the face of God. And you'd think that when he says this, everybody would start celebrating, right? Well, keep reading. Verse 3, and behold, some of the scribes, meaning Phil shorthand, Jewish elite religious people. Some of these people are saying to themselves, and we don't know if that just means that they're saying it quietly under their breath, if they're saying that just in their mind or their hearts, this man is blaspheming. So they're upset by what Jesus said, and then Jesus, it says, knowing their thoughts, calls them out for being evil. Now we know that because Jesus is man, it doesn't mean that he has like X-man, you know, Xavier power to read minds or something, and that everywhere he goes, he knows what everybody's thinking all the time, something like that. Now, he's fully man, but that doesn't mean that he, from time to time, can't have the Spirit give him a revelation of, I perceive you're thinking this. I didn't say that. Well, how did you know? And that's very well what I think could be going on here. Another possibility, a more human way to understand it would be that he just read the situation. He noticed that they seemed uncomfortable. He, he noticed the way you might go into a room and you kind of read the room, and you're like, I perceive you are not real happy with this. Either way, Jesus being fully God, fully man, he condemns these men for their evil hearts, their evil thoughts. Why are these guys upset, though? Why would Jewish men hear Jesus say, your sins are forgiven, and get all upset? Answer is because Jewish people know that forgiveness is only declared by God through a priest who's speaking on behalf of God in the temple. Go back to verse 1. Where are they? And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city meaning just outside of Galilee, which means hundreds of miles away from the temple, meaning Jesus is not in the temple, and he is not a high priest. At best, humanly speaking, he's a rabbi in these guys' minds, a teacher. So what is a Jewish teacher outside of the temple, hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem, telling a man your sins are forgiven? That's blasphemy. You can't do that unless you're there in that time, in that location, and speaking on behalf of God. To just go around and start declaring your sins are forgiven is to say that you're God yourself. It's one of those moments, by the way, when people say, Jesus never really says he's God. Why are Jewish men saying, that's blasphemy? You can't say that unless you're God. Does Jesus think that that was inappropriate for him to say? No, he says, what's wrong with your heart? 
And then proves that he's God because he says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise and walk, which should be pretty straightforward to think through, right? What's easier for me to say, hey, I forgive you, or some person comes up in a wheelchair and they say, hey, you've never walked before, but now walk, and then they get up. Which would you be more impressed with? Which one would you think, now that, that guy's got some sort of power coming through him if we start seeing something like that happen? And sure enough, he says, so that you will know that the Son of Man, which I believe is back to Daniel 7, which we talked about last week, and the authority over all of the universe is being given to the Son of Man. So he's really appealing to his divinity here, his godness, and says, so that you know that God in man on earth can forgive sins, I tell this paralytic man, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And the man rose and he went home. He didn't touch him, he just said something and the man got up and walked home. Sure enough, the crowd saw this, as you would if you saw this. They were both worshiping God, glorifying God, giving Him praise, but then they were also afraid. Now, why would they be afraid? Because like, whoa, if you have that kind of power, like, uh, please don't hurt me, you know? Who has such authority? It should be clear. Jesus is God, and that God is Jesus, and we should see in this the power of God, and we should also see a foreshadowing of Jesus coming to challenge the ultimate evil, not just paralysis, but death itself and the decay that came from death, sin, and that's why this story uses three times the language, rise, get up, and arose. Because when sin is dealt with, that word rise or rose is the word for resurrection. When God deals with sin, resurrection is never far behind. And so it is with this story, a, a little portrait, picture, pointing us ahead to when Jesus, the great high priest, would die for sinners on a cross, and then he would rise again to show that he is, in fact, the one with all authority over sin, Satan, and death itself. That's our first story. Turn your Bibles backwards, and we're going to read a second story. And this story will announce that Jesus is not just the only high priest that you need. He is the supreme king. Jesus is the supreme king. Notice this in chapter 8, verse 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold... The whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. You should notice that it says in first. First in verse 28 that he came to the other side, that's the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to the country of the Gadarenes. And what we know about this is that it is a Gentile, not Jewish community. 
a big hint should be that there's pigs and pig farmers. Jews thought pigs were unclean, and so they wouldn't have touched or been around or consumed any pigs in their diet. Shame on the Jewish scriptures. Not, not really. That was a bad joke. Anyway, <laughs> I like bacon. Sorry. <laughs> um, so anyway, Jews did not associate with pigs, and that's one of the reasons, you know, these people are non-Jewish. They would have not been informed with Jewish stuff, and so that's going to be helpful as you think through it. Now, notice right away we see two demon-possessed men, and I'd say right away a lot of us are like, what? Demon-possessed men? This is not something that's really in much of the later New Testament documents. It's only in the stories surrounding Jesus. It's not a whole lot in the Old Testament. So really just in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do you find these stories of demon possession. And I think it's important for us to not go too far on one extreme or the other like most issues that we think through. But there's extremes that we could fall into when we think about demon possession. One is to completely deny the reality of it altogether. I can tell you from my 10 plus years of working in church work and pastoral ministry, I have on at least one occasion, I think, come into an encounter where I think somebody was possessed by a demon, and I therefore think it still happens, and it was a a longer story for another day, and I think it would distract us from the main point here, so we'll leave that for another day, maybe. Uh, But the point being, I, I, I truly believe this is a real reality that somebody could be controlled by evil, essentially, is to think about that the world that we live in We are modern people that live in the United States, so we have Western thought and education, so a lot of you struggle with this reality. You struggle with the reality that there are such a thing as invisible forces and powers, and many of them are personal and spiritual. So there's the physical world that we see, but as Christians, we believe in a non-physical world that we can't see that really relates and interacts with the physical world. And this is something that the more and more you read the Bible, the more and more you just have to be in agreement upon or you're imposing your worldview onto theirs and therefore it's not going to actually say what it's saying. Some people look at demon possession and they just simply read them in modern terms. So an example of that would be, well, maybe they were like schizophrenics or maybe they were bipolar and we just psychologically label all of these different occurrences of demon possession. I think this is a a, a very important part to be extremely careful. It would be an extreme, I think, to go to either side to say that sometimes it's possible that some people that have external manifestations on a physical way that could be maybe whether it's psychiatric of mental health problems, you know, people that would be in what we would say, you know, mental health homes or something, um, or different debilitating diseases, It's, I think, very possible that we've just quickly said, oh, they just have some sort of mental health problem, and that there could be an underlying problem, spiritually speaking. But to overstate that case is to then say all of the people that have some sort of issue like that, therefore, are demon-possessed or something. And so there is, I think, a happy middle ground here that I personally don't know all the ins and outs of doing it. Like I said, I've got maybe one experience in my whole life that I could point to to say, I I think that was demon-possession. But other than that, um, a lot of us are really uninformed with this. Uh, A lot of times because of the way we modernize things, we we probably don't interact with it that much because we just say, oh, that's just some sort of mental health thing. Let's put them away in a home. And we maybe never address the underlying spiritual reality of what's going on there. So I think it's important for all of us at this point, at the bare minimum, to be confronted and challenged 
do you believe that there are things that you cannot see that are going on that directly affect the world around you? And hopefully you can start at that point. For some of you here, if you're very modern and you read this and you're new to the Bible and you're like, that's just weird. I don't know if I could get on this Jesus thing. You know, as modern people, there are some weird things about the way we do the world. So I was thinking about this, like, I've got a phone here and we've got this thing called Wi-Fi or the way that messages go up to satellites and back down. Just try and imagine the most primitive, uneducated person that has no sense of technology ever. They've been living in the backwoods of a jungle their entire life, and then try to explain to them that you're getting messages through the air that go down to your phone and whatever. You see what I'm saying? Like, how would you even start to comprehend what that is? How would you explain to them electricity, that we plug this thing in, and then when that comes in, lights come on? So as modern people, start thinking for a moment that there's things that are invisible that you don't see that leads to the everyday physical effects that are around you, and it's hard to explain. Well, the parallel is, spiritually speaking, that's the same thing that's going on all through the Scriptures. Spiritually speaking, there is an invisible reality that's going on all around us, and we we at times, I think, struggle to grasp, how do you explain that? And so you use metaphors use similes and illustrations because you can't see it, you don't know. And all that to mean we should be very careful to go on one extreme or the other in all of these conversations as we work this out in our everyday lives. Back to the story. What happens when these demon-possessed men see Jesus? Well, it's quite interesting that they say, "'O Son of God.'" It's interesting because these are the first people in the story of Matthew to address Jesus in this way, and they're under evil influence. In other words, the other humans throughout the story, called Jesus' teacher or rabbi or another title that's more human-like, but to call Jesus Son of God means that they know who Jesus really is. They know who is in their presence. This reminds me of James, by the way. There's a letter written by Jesus' half-brother, and he says, interesting, some of you say you believe that Jesus is God, you believe in God. Well, great, so do the demons. So surely, true faith, if we're going to talk about what it means to truly believe, is more than just believing that Jesus is God, or that God is Jesus, however, which way you want to put it. I want to announce that truth this morning, but I want to announce it in such a way that it changes your heart to want to not just believe that it's true, but let your life be changed and transformed by that reality. Demons are not following or submitting to and saying, we want to have Jesus be our master. They would follow Satan and the darkness of the world and want to oppose what God is doing. And so they say, Jesus is the Son of God. I mentioned this last week, and I'll say it again briefly here. I think the simplest way to understand the phrase Son of God is not that God is an invisible reality and that He birthed a son. It's a Hebrew phrase, Son of, meaning that you're so closely identified with the Father that you're the Son of something. And so to say you're a Son of God is actually connecting back to several Old Testament references of being the representative of Israel or otherwise the Messiah or, to put it more simply, What does Son of God mean? It means you're the Messianic King. 
Or as I said earlier, this teaching is announcing to us that Jesus is the supreme king and ruler over both domains, the invisible domain and the physical domain. And his being God and man in flesh together, all one, shows that he is the true supreme king over everything, both what is seen and unseen. And so Jesus is being asked whether or not he has come too early. Like, hey, wait, there's a time when the king is going to come and establish his reign and rule. And they're wondering, are you going to torture us now? Because the time hasn't come. And what that means about their knowledge, I don't know. But I think it does point to the fact that, hey, Satan and demons probably know a whole lot more than we want to give them credit for. And, and they're aware that Jesus is supposed to establish as king, whoever the messianic king is, a reign and rule over all the earth and put all evil away. And when Jesus steps into this location, we notice that that's not reality yet. There are people still possessed and hurting by evil in the world. And so there is a day that will come, and it still has not come, and we're still waiting for that day. And these men know of it. And so not only do they believe that Jesus is God in that sense, the true supreme king, but they also know that he's going to be judged, that rules over and judges everything and makes everything right. So we should take away from this, at the very least, that in the same way that David, who was the greatest king that the Jews ever saw, silenced evil spirits by playing music, in a much greater way, Jesus with a word silences and expels evil by just saying go. He's a much, much greater David. And so the men were freed from their demon possession. And the demons went into some pigs and immediately were like, that's weird. Why pigs? Unclean spirit goes into an unclean animal. That makes sense in a Jewish worldview. Most of us aren't Jews in the room, so maybe that gets lost on us. I think probably the best explanation is that the pig idea was from the demons. Did you notice that in the story? This wasn't like Jesus' idea, like, hey, yeah, let's just kill a bunch of pigs. You know, He just granted them their wish, and so then when they went into the pigs, the pigs went crazy, and they ran off a cliff and died. And then the people got upset, really upset, said, get out of here. Now, why would they have been upset? One reason could be that they were living off of those pigs, and we know that pigs would have cost a good bit of money from other scriptures and historical studies. So if you take a whole herd of pigs and you just lost them all, that's like saying, hey, you just lost your whole bank account and your 401k, and it's like, whoa, I'm upset. The economy is going to be hurt in this town because of this man, Jesus, casting out these demons. Instead of celebrating Jesus healing and restoring these men to their right mind, they're more concerned about their finances. That's one possibility. Or it could just be they know the power that this man has, similar to the previous story, and they're just like, get away. We're afraid. Either one. Notice we've got two stories, and both stories end in a very similar fashion. Jesus displays his godlike power, and when he does so, they're afraid. It's the same thing we're going to see in our third and final story. Look back up the page at Jesus calming the storm and starting in verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep 
And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. There was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? We've announced so far with three stories. The first two say that Jesus is the only priest you'll ever need. The second story announced that Jesus is the supreme king over all of creation, both the invisible and visible world. And finally, this story announces that Jesus is the greatest prophet, much greater than Jonah. I want you to notice that they get into a boat with the disciples, and we already know that some of these disciples are experienced fishermen who fished on this sea for their entire livelihoods up to this point of their lives. It says that there arose a great storm, the word mega, which you should know um, in terms of we use that in English. Something is really big, you say, oh, that was Megatron or something, you know? So this is a mega storm, literally, on the sea. The word storm is not actually used here, and I want you to just tuck this away for just a moment. The word here is actually quake for like an earthquake. So it was a great quake that happened in this area. And so the storm was huge. It was so huge that it frightened experienced fishermen that had been on this water, like I said, for their entire lives. So you got to imagine, I heard Mark Dever teaching on this, and he said, it's like being in an airplane, and typically there's turbulence, and there's the people that are, you know, new flyers, and they're like, oh, I'm scared. And then the flight attendants are like, it's normal, it's just turbulence. But then when the flight attendants get scared, you're like, "Uh uh-oh, we should be really scared, because if they're scared, and they're like praying, and like, oh, dear God, then you know, like, it's really bad turbulence. And so he was explaining that he was on a flight like that. And so, yeah, that would be scary, right? So if these fishermen are afraid, you, you should realize this is a, a really bad storm. It's a, it's a quake, a mega quake. When we read this story, it might be simple enough to just say, oh, wow, Jesus has power to calm the storm. Cool, Jesus is God. God is Jesus. Amen. Close the sermon now then we'd be missing the whole story and its underlying meaning that's running from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, the very first sentence that you have in the scripture says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then verse 2 says, and the earth was formless and void, or my translation is wild wasteland, and the Spirit of the Lord covered the face of the, anyone know? Deep, thank you for your loud answer. The Spirit of the Lord was hovering like a bird, it's the language used there, hovering like a bird over the face of the deep. Deep what? The deep, chaotic waters. In Jewish worldview and in ancient worldview, especially like Babylonian literature, from the very old of times, one of the most scary, chaotic places was a turbulent sea. Does that make sense to you? That that would be an image of something of evil, of destruction, of chaos. Rough water. Now maybe you've never really been on the water. Many of you grew up around here where there's not much water other than a big lake. Now it is a very big lake. It's almost ocean-like. I grew up on the East Coast. Yeah, East Coast. I'm not trying to brag about that. I'm just saying it as a reality. So I went to the ocean almost every summer 
and experience the power of the waves. Have you ever experienced waves in a storm? If you haven't, it can sometimes be the most helpless feeling when you start feeling the riptide of the current and realizing, oh no, I might die right now. And that's just some waves. There was one time where we were on vacation and there was a pretty large storm coming and the waves were really big. And I was a teenager and I was a big fool, right? And I thought, this would be fun. So I get my boogie board and I decide, let's go in these waves. And I think I almost died, like a couple times. And then I was like, okay, time to get out. And I didn't learn the lesson because then in college, I ended up getting a trip to go to Hawaii to play basketball. And we had a tournament or played some teams over the Christmas break. And in Hawaii, some of you might know that they have famous surfing spots. In Waima Bay, there's this one spot that just the way that the north shore breaks in, it makes these giant, giant waves. We had no boogie boards, no surfboards, but we had a half of a day off, and we're like, let's stop and go swimming in those waters. And to illustrate the power of the waves, and this was not like a rough stormy day, this was just a nice, bright, sunny day, I would sit down like this on the ground, the waves would come and the undertow would literally pull my entire body and throw me back onto the beach. And that's just the first set of waves before you even get out to the surfing waves. I have never in my life ever felt so weak and helpless than the power of the pull of that water to take me. And, and at this point, I am by far at my peak of my athletic prowess as a college basketball player. And I am in the best shape ever, like, oh, I've got this, and I'm young, and I'm arrogant, right? And so I'm thinking, this is going to be no problem. And by the end of maybe an hour or so of playing around in the water, I was as spent as I've ever been spent, of just like, ah. I think Christine took a photo of us, and there's like these eight basketball players, and they look like we just got beat up bad. The point is to say that if you've never experienced it, water can be strong and chaotic. And so for the Jewish worldview, from the very first verse of the Bible, you have a story about God creating out of the chaotic waters order in the, in the world that we now live in. Then the next major story is of a flood in terms of water and the waters kind of decreating, going back from the, the whole earth is covered by water, and then there's no ground, and then the whole earth gets covered by water. That's how the flood story is kind of like a decreation of the entire creation. Then you move forward and you see in Exodus chapter 14 and 15 that there's this big story that we looked at just a few weeks ago where the waters are the enemy that's helping, not, that is preventing the people of Israel from getting out under Pharaoh's hand. And so again, they're, they're trapped in between an army coming after them and then, and then the water's there and God shows his power over the chaotic waters and the waters then crush over all of the people. So when you read the Psalms, like Psalm 18 or Psalm 69, or there's def different Psalms where you notice that the waters are seen as this chaotic monster. Or more literally, you could read the book of Daniel and realize that out of the sea comes these beasts. There's these four beasts, and they all represent the different kingdoms and empires that are oppressing God's people. And over and over again throughout the Jewish scriptures, there's these different things that show us that in Jewish writing, the sea was a place of darkness and evil, and it was threatening, and it was wild, and it appeared as this dark substance that opposed God. So in the Exodus story, when Moses leads the people through, Yahweh displays his power over the darkness of the sea. 
The story we have here is about Jesus showing that he is God. He has the power of Yahweh. He has the power over the storm. Furthermore, if you did not connect the dots between this story and Jonah, let me do that for you now. Both Jesus and Jonah were in a boat in the sea. Both Jesus and Jonah's boat were overtaken by a great storm. Both Jesus and Jonah were asleep on the boat. Both Jesus and Jonah were awoken by experienced sailors that were afraid for their lives and said, we're going to perish. In both stories, Jesus and Jonah, there is a miracle, a divine intervention that calms the chaotic waters. In response to this miracle, in both stories, the sailors on Jonah's boat and the disciples in Jesus' boat are more terrified by the power they saw displayed by Jesus or the God Yahweh in the Jonah story than they were by the storm. And when you start seeing these parallels of Jonah chapter 1 and Jesus here calming the storm, you should be like, wow, they're almost identical. But you should notice one big difference. When the storm is calmed in the Jonah story, he explains to the sailors that because of his running from God and because of his sin, he needs to be thrown into the chaotic waters of the sea so that everyone else will live. As you noticed, Jesus speaks a word and he rebukes the storm. The language is actually the same language for rebuking a demon. He rebukes it. He personifies the storm and says, peace be still, calm. The storm is calmed just by a word from Jesus. The storm is calmed because Jonah gave up his life so that the sailors could live. See, that's the big difference between these two stories. Or is it? Could it be that Matthew is pointing forward to how this story, the gospel of Matthew, and how it ends, if you turn a couple pages over, you could look up Matthew 12, 41, where Jesus will say, one greater than Jonah is here. Jesus calmed a storm with a word, but the next time that Matthew will use the word quake for the word storm here is when there's an earthquake as Jesus hangs on the cross. If you're wondering, why not just say it was a great storm? Why say it was a great quake? Because Matthew is a literary genius. He is brilliant. He is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these stories. And as he writes these stories, you should know that they're pointing forward to the ultimate quake, the ultimate storm, when Jesus would die on a cross, the only storm that you and I should be afraid of, the storm of death, the storm of God's wrath and judgment coming against sinners for all the chaos that we have created on this earth. He did not originally make this world with chaos and sin, he made it with order, out of the chaos, and we have messed it up. Jesus is God, but God is Jesus. And when you look at Jesus, you see the God who created everything, calming the storm, not just with the disciples, but calming the storm of all evil and the ultimate storm of all of our sin and all of the chaos and destruction that you and I have done in our lives. Come to Jesus. 
believe in Jesus. Oh, you of little faith. Notice Jesus wakes up. This, is, this was a stunning thought. I don't know about you, but when I get woken up from a nap, I'm not always the happiest camper. My sister's laughing louder than all of you because she's seen it more. When I wake up from a nap, I may not be thinking about the other people. I'm thinking about myself. But when you're in the fullness of God, and even though he is fully man, he got tired. He was really tired. He needed to sleep. Apparently, Jesus is a sound sleeper. (laughs) He gets woken up, and he says, you have little faith. Jesus saves people with any kind of faith. Little faith, big faith. Do you have faith that Jesus can calm the storm? The storm of your life, the storm of this world. Every little storm in our lives is pointing to the bigger storm of the chaos that came into this world from our sin. And so when Sybil came up here and read Revelation 21, it's because the story of the Bible begins with chaos and God bringing order out of it, out of the waters. Throughout it, there's these little moments in Jonah and the Exodus story and Jesus calming the storm, but eventually there's a day when Jesus returns to judge and he says, there will be no more sea. For those of you that love the ocean and you're surfer dudes and you're thinking, oh man, there's not going to be any more oceans, that's not what the point is. The point is there'll be no more chaos, there'll be no more chaotic waters, there'll be no more evil. It's a poetry metaphor to say, there will be no more chaos. When God and man dwell together again, the way that God designed the world from the beginning, in Revelation 21.1, read it again, it's right there in your bulletin, you'll see there will be no more sea. He will wipe every tear from their eye. Hallelujah. When Jesus comes to reign and rule in this way. So friends, if you're struggling with your faith, gather around other Christians who maybe their faith is bigger and stronger. And have them bring you to this God through Jesus Christ, the only priest you need, the supreme king over all of creation, and the greatest prophet that ever will be. I pray that each of us, whether we have little faith or great faith, we'll see that Jesus will take even people with little faith, oh, you have little faith, and still save them and still rescue them out of their storms. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for this opportunity to announce and declare the good news that we have of no more evil reigning and ruling over this earth, no more evil ruling in our hearts. We thank you for the work that Jesus has done on the cross when the great quake, the storm, the ultimate storm fell on him and darkness covered the land in the middle of the noonday. We praise you. We worship you. In fact, we should be in fear and awe and tremble before you when we hear such news. I pray that we would, in fact, have that appropriate response today. That we would see your glory and your majesty, see your power on display, and we would see how, how big you are, how small our storms are in comparison to the bigness of your power and your creation and your rule and reign over it. And help us know that whether we can see it or not, whether it's visible or invisible, you are king and ruler over all. So we just want to thank you now for this word, and we want to pray 
and ask that you would increase our faith and help us as a church community to put our trust in Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here